Hi, I'm Gareth Kane. Welcome to the Net Zero Business Podcast. As it's January, I thought we should do the whole Janus thing for sustainability, you know, taking the opportunity to look backwards at 2023 and then forward to the year ahead. And who better to help me than James Murray, editor of Business Green, who's one of the shrewdest observers of all things business and sustainability around. So thanks for joining me, James. No, thanks, Gareth. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with Business Green, but just in case, could you briefly summarise what you guys do? Um, yeah, I suppose we kind of do what it says on the tin. We're a, we're a news and information website, um, primarily news, but we do lots of analysis and in-depth features as well uh, for the green economy, for green businesses um, and the wider kind of progressive green economy community. Brilliant. Thanks. James and I have been pondering a series of questions, but we haven't seen each other's answers just yet. So it'll be interesting to find out where we agree and disagree on these questions. So, James, let's start by looking back at 2023. What were your top three pivotal events of the year? Yeah, so I'm not sure if there's a bit of recency bias going on here because they're all towards the tail end of the year, partly because we, we cover so much stuff, it's hard to remember everything that went on. But, I mean, I, I, I would certainly start with the outcome from COP28 um, and the UAE consensus. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely not one of these people who think the whole thing is a, a sideshow and an irrelevance. I mean, I think there's real significance and value in all the world's governments coming together to reach compromise agreements on on climate action even if they are uh, by definition inadequate and I, I you know and I do think the commitments that that came out of the Dubai summit were really significant um obviously the headline commitment that all countries agreed to transition away uh, from fossil fuels um in line with the goals of the Paris agreement I think that was a really really big signal to markets worldwide that fossil fuel investments are riskier than ever before and green investments are more attractive than ever before. Um, and then you add in some of the other stuff that they, they delivered there, like more funding for loss and damage and various other kind of sectoral targets for renewable energy and energy efficiency and the like. And, I, I you know, it was, you have to caveat it and say it was not big enough in any way, shape or form. And we're still on track for whatever it is, two and a half, three degrees of warming this century. But that was real progress and significant progress. And I think most businesses will recognize it as such. So I think, you know, that for me is probably the the first big headline one. Right. Yeah. Well, I had that one as well uh, as my number one. Uh, I suppose the, I would temper it a little bit with the, the shock I got that, that the COP process took that long to get to the nub of the problem, which is fossil fuels, and um, whether it was wishful thinking or just uh, sort of uh, tiptoeing around the elephant in the room. But uh, it, it did seem, you know, I'm glad we got there, but it seems quite incredible we took that long to get there. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. But then I also think, you know, there is a chunk of countries that clearly don't believe in the need to decarbonize this quickly and are clearly completely wedded to a fossil fuel economy model. And the fact that they felt such pressure that they kind of had to sign off on these words that basically mean their previous economic development model is toast that, you know, if, if, if these words are manifest, then um, they are in a huge amount of trouble. I, th I think, you know, again, that is a really significant sign that things yeah. are shifting and stuff that wouldn't have been imaginable two or three years ago is, is now, 
you know, a part of an international accord. Um, and these things do matter because they do send signals to investors. They do send mm-hmm. signals to insurance companies and risk managers. They do send signals to big corporates and, and companies. And they and they do send signals to governments around the world. So I, I completely I agree all the caveats apply, but it, it did feel like a significant moment. And I, I think mm-hmm. people were right to celebrate it, albeit for only a short period. <laughs> okay, what's number two in your list then? So number two was um, going back to well, going from that global perspective to the, um, a much more domestic um, point of view is, and a lot of these are policy focused because I do think so much of the net zero transition and sustainable business is still um, either led by or shaped by policy to a, to a large degree. So I do think Rishi Sunak's kind of decision to make a kind of very visible attack on net zero policies mm-hmm. was another big turning point big story of this year um again i think you know it was overspun a little bit the actual changes in the policies weren't significant but i do think the shift in the rhetoric from number 10 the the growing influence of parts of the conservative party that have never taken this agenda seriously um is is a worrying development um and will definitely have more impact going into this year in an election year um and i you know i think you can you only have to see the kind of chorus of disapproval from business groups, not just NGOs. This wasn't just campaigners saying that this is a retrograde step. This was big businesses, big investors saying, look, we, we can't invest if we're just getting such mixed signals. Um, and we do need a bit more clarity and leadership from government. And yeah, I, I, it's hard to look part of, past that as a, a negative, but very significant story from this year. Yeah. I don't actually have that one in my top three, so I'll, I'll, I'll if we move on to your third one, then my, uh, I'll come in my. I, I was t- yeah, I was a bit torn on this one. So um, I think I think I, did, I put as my third one did did emissions peak last year? Yeah. Um, like you know, there's there's analysis that suggests certainly from the energy system, maybe globally as a whole, emissions might have peaked last year. Um, and if they didn't, they certainly, if they didn't peak last year, they're probably going to peak this coming year. Um, and I just think it, that big global level, the structural shift that we're seeing with clean energy massively surpassing dirty energy in terms of new capacity coming online, the energy efficiency gains that are being made in industrialized economies, um, the pace of the shift actually in China as well, which again, doesn't really get appreciated. I mean, that that's the that's the big economy that really determines the weather for these things, both figuratively and literally. Um, you know, the, the huge shifts going on there. And even as they're building more coal capacity, there's a growing sense that that capacity is going to be used a lot less than was previously projected. Um, so I do think the fact that we are at or maybe even past the peak in global emissions will be, you know, that if, if that is the case, that will be a kind of world historic moment that we've just lived through, a, a kind of almost a civilizational level. Yeah. So I, I think that's that that could be the one. Um, obviously, depends on whether or not it happened or not. But we'll, we'll yeah. find out when the NUMP data comes through in the coming months. Yeah. And then probably a couple of years to see what happens after the peak, whether it's a, just a, a slight leveling off. But yes. And when you're speaking there, going back to some of the other things you were talking about, again, it uh, if global emissions do peak, it gets us away from that narrative that the UK is on some sort of you know suicidal path to net zero, while the rest of the the world looks on and laughs. Mm-hmm. If global emissions peak, then it it undercuts that that narrative. Absolutely, I mean, I mean, there is a there's a slightly Panglossian view that there's certain people that 
I really respect do subscribe to that say actually once we do peak the kind of it will be quite a sharp drop off that that mm. you're going to see these kind of this s curve adoption of clean technologies that will destroy fossil fuel demand so much quicker than is projected um and we're starting to see that in certain electric vehicle markets i mean like the scale of the electric vehicle adoption rates in the in china in particular which again mm. is the big market that can shift the shift the dial very quickly um in parts of the us in parts of europe i mean it does. It feels optimistic to me. I think there's there's definitely reasons to treat these projections with a pinch of salt. But mm-hmm. you know, there are also, as I say, credible outfits that say this stuff's going to deploy so quickly now that it's proven and now it's more cost competitive that we could start to see emissions fall really quickly. And you're right that from a kind of political economy perspective, that does transform everything because you start to normalize it. You you, you completely sort of destroy these arguments that uh, the green net zero route forward is a route that will re- result in poverty and insecurity. And you actually start to show that, no, actually, this is just a normal development path now. Um, it could be, and I keep saying could, but it really could be transformational and hugely positive and, and hold out the hopes that by the mid-2030s, we are maybe not quite onto a two-degree compatible decarbonisation path, but moving towards it much more quickly than we previously thought possible. Yeah. My two actually uh, relate a little bit to that, but are, are more narrow in focus. Uh, the second one was a piece of uh, legislation, EU legislation that almost passed me by, which was the, the Carbon Boundary Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. And I think this could be transformational and help drive that peak that you're talking about. And it's mainly been presented as a way of stopping carbon leakage. In other words, high carbon industries simply moving overseas to where they may be less regulated, uh, but not cutting the emissions overall. Because it means that industries in those countries are going to have to reduce their carbon intensity in order to compete globally. You know, the, the EU have introduced this this, um, this autumn. It's, it's not starting to bite yet. It, it ratchets up. The UK is considering it. The US is mulling on doing the same. So if all the big sort of consumption countries start, you know, putting this barrier, basically a, a carbon tax on the, the on the border, I think that could help make a real difference and really start to drive decarbonisation down these global supply chains and again it gets away from that idea that we just lose industry to to other nations yeah you, you've preempted one of my answers for later actually i was gonna <laughs> highlight the the cvam as well i mean i couldn't agree more i think it's a absolutely massively important lever and and if the eu and the uk and others hold their nerve uh, the impact could be really profound you could almost by default start to get a global carbon price in place which yeah. which is obviously for many economists as, who work in this space has been the kind of holy grail that would arguably you know have a bigger impact on decarbonization than anything yeah. else so i think it's yeah it's it's really significant i mean politically it's going to still be very challenging there's going to be lots of kind of trade disputes and accusations of protectionism bumping around once these import tariffs actually get imposed but if it's done well it really could be transformational. I couldn't agree more. The other thing I had, which is perhaps a little bit more personal, um, living in the northeast of England, uh, where two of these events happened, is the contrasting fortunes of electric vehicle battery gigafactories. Uh, because we had the all the hype over British Volt, 
uh, which uh, promptly collapsed. And the the empty site that was cleared still has big posters up, is only uh, about 13 miles north of where I'm sat at the minute. And then the, the contrast between that and what Nissan have built in uh, collaboration with a, I think it's a Chinese battery manufacturer, uh, right next to their plant in uh, Washington. And it, it, I was actually asked to to join a, a, a small uh, sort of collaboration to pitch to British or services to British Bolt. And I wouldn't touch it. I, I couldn't see what they had to sell. Whereas the the Nissan project had both a product and customer to buy it, mm. buy that product. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about green business and creating green jobs. But a little matter of mine is it still has to make business sense. So you have to make it work. And there I've seen too many projects come in on a on a wave of hype and then disappear again, and I'm hoping the the JLR one in Somerset as well is similar. Um, they have it's you know it's being done in collaboration with a major manufacturer, so they have the customer base there. So um, I think it, it, it's a big lesson for um, green businesses and particularly those who are looking to transform their supply chains that you have to get it right. And uh, and work with the the industries you need to produce the products you want to actually build a supply chain, and not rely on um, you know maybe so much uh, the British faults of this world. Mm, absolutely, and and I think it's really interesting as well that it's probably an area where government deserves a bit of credit um, that they you know they did ultimately recognise the importance of having these supply chains in place and closer to home. I mean, they, they made several, a lot of missteps along the way, but, you know, that JLR project, that did get over the line because of proactive um, industrial policy and, and, and direct support from government. And um, I think the, the, the project the, to build the electric mini in Oxford similarly, and I think that there has been a recognition both from the government and from Labour that, you know, you do need to provide policy and subsidy support at the early stage of these industries, otherwise you're going to lose them. Yeah. Um, and and if you do lose them, you're in serious trouble because it's it, you know it, it becomes a kind of it's a strategic and um, long term competitiveness issue uh, that we could just import all this technology, but that there are huge risks and financial impacts that come with that. So there is a, a big case for keeping some parts of that supply chain here, and um, policymakers do seem to have bought that argument, um, albeit a little belatedly. Okay, so in 2023, who? Do you nominate as your your hero of the year? Um, I was thinking about this one, but I, I I'm going to go for an individual actually. Um, and whenever you go for an individual on these sort of things, you're slightly wary that this could all blow up in a few months' time. So this is not a kind of ringing endorsement of everything they ever do in the future. Um, but I do think the story at Octopus Energy, um, led by their CEO Greg Jackson, is just one of the most remarkable British business success stories of modern times, um, that they recently secured an investment round that valued the company at £7.8 billion, um, which is, you know, and it's eight years old. And yeah. we just we just haven't seen, sorry, $7.8 billion, sorry, to get the, get the currency right. But, you know, they, they raised about, I think it's about $800 million, latest investment round. They're now operating in, I can't remember the exact number, but multiple countries around the world. Um, and the whole business is engineered towards advancing the net zero transition. It's clean energy, it's electric vehicles, it's smart grids. The, you know, it is, it's recognising, as they've explained many times before, 
that the energy market globally was basically absolutely ripe for innovation. It had become, you know, far too staid, was completely unfit for purpose. And they've come in and disrupted it. And it's still early days. You know, there's lots of stories of companies trying to transform things that blow up at some point along the road. But to date, it has been a truly remarkable success. And and I should say, probably shouldn't just pick him. I should also mention, you know, the likes of Ovo um, and and Ecotricity and, and Good Energy and some of the others that have similarly come in with this kind of pioneering model. So maybe it's Greg as a kind of representative of that that yeah. that wave of companies. But um, I just think that's hugely, hugely exciting. And it's something we haven't seen British business do nearly enough of with there's so many sort of interesting tech stories that come out of this country that they cash out a bit too early or or they don't have the kind of real global ambition that the octopus and a couple of those others clearly do have. Um, and it's been a remarkable year for them. And fingers crossed it will continue. Excellent. Good choice. Mine is an, is also an organisation, um, the UK Advertising Standards Agency, because their zero tolerance of greenwash, I think, is quite extraordinary, you know, for a government quango, who tend to be quite timid about how they interpret rules and things like that. Whereas they're looking at adverts for really quite big brands like Shell or Anglian Water and saying, well, you haven't put that claim in context. So, you know, the famous one, the Shell advert with the um, the, the lady showing uh, the, the viewer around a, a service station with lots of electric charging points. And they banned that because it failed to mention that Shell makes the vast majority of its profits through fossil fuels. And likewise, Anglian Water uh, came unstuck because they wanted to present their sustainable drainage system. But uh, the ASA decided that as it had so many pollution incidents, that that wasn't a valid thing to say. And that's quite a, you know, I, I welcome it. It's just a, quite a fundamental appreciation of what greenwash means. And some of the things they've been saying about what they're going to do next year, uh, it sounds like they're going to be continuing to ramp up that and really raise the bar on what people can claim as green. Yeah, it's a fascinating one to watch, isn't it? I mean, what what do you make of the, the sort of slight concern that there's a risk of going too far and forcing companies to kind of green hush, I suppose, is the term that's used, or or, or, or not promote things because they're too scared of getting slapped? Is that do you think that's a risk or not? I, I go uh, back and forth on that. I don't know. There's um, I, I think I show my age now. Greg Proops, when he was on Whose Line Is It Anyway, uh, there was they were talking about uh, the the sort of have a nice day culture in the the US compared to UK culture, and uh, he said I'd rather be told have a nice day by somebody who didn't mean it than sought off by someone who did, and it's sort of like a bit like that to me is that I'd almost rather people kept quiet about their green credentials but delivered mm. rather than presented green credentials when they're not delivering. So um, I, personally, I think that's a risk I'm willing to take. And, well, during the summer I did a off my own bat because I was uh, hoping for some work for one of these corporations, but I looked at two big tech companies neither of whom I'll name. And I looked at their sustainability reports ahead of um, ahead of a meeting and they were chalk and cheese. Mm. Uh, a lot of, one was just full of jargon and, and nice words and, you know, all these quotes saying, oh, our carbon reduction is the equivalent of taking 15,000 cars off the road and that sort of thing. But what, without saying, you know, 
that could be 1% of their carbon footprint. It could be 30% of their carbon footprint, but they were never giving that context. Whereas the other brand were giving that context. Everything they were claiming was put firmly in context. And if it even forces people to to live, well, to look objectively at their own achievements and say whether that's any good or not, I think that's a, you know, that's a win. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay, so next one we have is Villain of the Year. Uh, plenty of candidates. Indeed, as always. Um, so I was going to, I went for, I went back to the COP process again, actually, on this. And I've I've gone for the kind of, how to term them, the kind of the axis of petrostates who yeah. remain the big blockers of a more ambitious agreement on the international stage through the COP process. Um, I think this year it was kind of Saudi Arabia who were the ones who took the hit, um, as they always tend to, and were the most kind of visible opponents of a more ambitious accord. But, you know, you have the, they are working in conjunction. And, you know, there is a group of nations, um, you know, Russia and Iran and others would be amongst them, um, that are you know, fiercely opposed to a more ambitious agreement on on decarbonisation. Mm. Um, and the, the thing that's particularly frustrating, I think, about some of those countries is th- they're not fiercely opposed to it on the kind of legitimate grounds that I think some developing countries have, in which they haven't been shown an alternative uh, development path or they haven't seen the funding they need to decarbonize. So, you know, I think so when some of the kind of emerging petro states from, from the global south say, look, we have a problem here, that 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 problem is legitimate. That needs addressing. There's much more great, there's much, I think, more legitimate concern there. Uh, but I think for some of the petro states, and it's this small group that tend to be sort of leading the way on blocking a more ambitious agreement, you know, it's just, it's unclear what they think beyond that they're comfortable with a kind of three, four degree um, warming trajectory. They keep talking about carbon capture and storage as as the potential solution and the role of fossil fuels in the transition. But, you know, you're not seeing them deploy carbon capture and storage at any any given realistic (laughs) scale. Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's, I'm always a bit reluctant to point fingers at villains in this thing. I think it's much more complicated. I think, you know, they would rightly say that we are, that the global north is consuming the oil that they produce um, and and the demand side has to be, um, mm-hmm. has to be tackled. But I think that argument falls down when you see stories such as we saw at COP28 of Saudi officials going into emerging economies and trying to lock in future fossil fuel demand. Yeah. You know, that, that when, when they're actually trying to manipulate and drive demand, um, as well as continuing to drive supply, you have to look at it and say, look, you are not, you are not seriously, you're not seriously committed to the things you've said you're committed to. Um, and I think they remain one of the biggest challenges we face in driving forward global decarbonisation. Yes, it's that the old cliche about it's very difficult to make somebody understand something if their livelihood depends on them not understanding it. Um, you mentioned before about how the economic development of many of these states is built entirely on fossil fuels so um it, it's a it's quite a fundamental ask we're making of them uh you know all of our you know all of society is modern society is built on on fossil fuels but i think for some of us it's going to be easier to trans 
transform away from it. But of course, if the rest of the world does decarbonize, then uh, those states won't find find their economies booming anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know. I mean, also that it does all play into the wider sort of insecurity that we're seeing. I mean, that you know, you can't deny that some of these states are involved in conflicts that they themselves triggered. Um, and that is, you know, just destabilizing anything, everything. And they, there just doesn't seem to be a, an interest from them in um, building a more sort of secure, stable economic and geopolitical model. And I think that's, you know, it's just deeply, deeply worrying as we go into this year when some of these conflicts could explode and expand mm-hmm. still further. So it's, um, yeah, worrying times to say the least. And I think they're, they're deserving villains. Yes. I should probably have gone for the same, uh, but I, I I went for somebody who irritated me intensely this year. Uh, and we talked before about UK politics and how they, the ruling Conservative Party is uh, or, or has been at least flirting with trying to use net zero and various things as uh, wedge issues on the run up to what's going to be a very difficult election for them. And, uh, you know, we had Rishi Sunak and his seven bins and whatnot. But I'd like to single out Mark Harper, UK Transport Secretary, for describing 15-minute neighbourhoods as, and I quote, sinister. Uh, just in case anybody doesn't know, a 15-minute neighbourhood is just a planning concept where everybody's got all the amenities they need on their doorstep rather than having to, to crisscross the city to go to the doctors or go shopping, whatever else. It's just about having it nice and convenient so you don't have to drive as much, so you get to speak to your neighbours more. And it's, um, and it's not even that new. About 20 years ago, it used to be called the Urban Village. But conspiracy theorists have latched onto this and they claim it means we will be banned from travelling more than 15 minutes from our houses, which is all linked into the sort of COVID thing. And it's full-on tinfoil hat stuff. Nobody's ever, ever, ever proposed this. Um, And that was what Mark Harper was sort of tapping into, that sort of paranoid conspiracy theory side. And, you know, as a government minister, particularly a government minister for transport, to be flirting with off-the-scale conspiracy theories, I think, is something else. So I'm singling him out, but it's really, um, I suppose, anybody in a position of power who, uh, you know, flirts with idiocy on this scale. Uh, so it is quite domestic, and it is just a personal thing, because I love the the concept of a 15-minute city. Uh, but yes, I'm afraid Mark Harper gets my thumbs down for the year. I don't, no, I'd happily agree with that one. And, and actually, that whole conference, that party conference in September, I mean, I think Claire Coutinho also questioned or, or tried to allege that Keir Starmer was pursuing a meat tax, which is just, you know, it is post-truth politics. And you, you, however they try and position it as a bit of knockabout fun, it's, it, you know, it is degrading. It sort of undermines confidence in politics. And these are serious issues. And, I, I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it was. I think that was a, a real low point for a party that is um, obviously struggling to 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 build a an approach that can get it back in favor with the with the public so if that's 2023 taken care of uh what are we going to see in 2024 what are your three most important things coming over the horizon james uh so i wrote a piece um earlier this was it last week actually on called called the um, um predictions for the green economy in 2024 i think the first thing to say is it's just really really difficult to work out what is going to happen there's just so much volatility 
based primarily on on the conflicts that are happening and the impacts those could have on global supply chains and and, and security um, in key regions. But then beyond that, of course, as many people have commented, I think it's something like two billion people are going to be invited to vote this year. I think like over sixty of the world's democracies are staging elections. Um, so there's just this inherent baked in uncertainty. Um, but obviously, I mean, two of mine just relate directly to that. I think the US election mm-hmm. could be transformational and could be deeply, deeply worrying for the entire um, green agenda. Um, I, I think everyone always tries to put a gloss on it and say, look, the, the US states will remain committed to decarbonisation, even if you have a President Trump and Last time he took the US out of the Paris Agreement and the Paris Agreement stayed strong and other countries didn't follow him. And that's all true, but I just think the damage that could be done um, is off the charts and and deeply, deeply worrying. Uh, so I think the US election is is obviously almost the top of the list. And then we've already mentioned it a couple of times domestically, the UK election as well, mm-hmm. um, which I think, uh, I think we can be more positive about. I think the polls suggest... It will see a positive shift in green policy development. I think you'd have a, um, if Labour do win, you'd have a government coming in that, regardless of the fiscal constraints, um, would treat decarbonisation as more of a top priority, um, would look to push through planning reforms that would have a, a big positive impact on on clean energy development, um, and would improve the mood music around this stuff, would send fewer conflicting signals. Um, but then also, I think that's slightly caveated by the fact that that would be all the good stuff. But the flip side of it is I think we are going to see the politicization of climate policy more than we ever have done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the Tories were to lose, again, I would, wouldn't call it at this stage. It's still a bit too early to call it. But, you know, if the polls are correct and the Tories were to lose, the two most likely replacements um, for Rishi Sunak would be Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman, both of whom in the last leadership election said they would either scrap or water down the UK's net zero targets. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think the outlook in the UK is considerably better than the US potentially on this stuff. But equally, I think we are going to see that same polarisation on these issues. Um, and it's possible to get a bit too obsessed about politics. I know lots of business people say, look, we're leading the way, we're doing more. But it it just doesn't help. It just make, it makes everyone's no. life harder if the political mood music and the policies are chopping and changing. Um that that should be helping to accelerate this transition rather than slow it down. Uh, so that, yeah, so those are two of them. Sorry, I did two yeah. at once, but they are kind of very right. much interrelated. You'll be you won't be surprised to know that I've got the same, but particularly the US. And yeah, I'd heard two million people, two billion people are voting. Um, somebody said four billion. It seems to go up every time it was reported on the on, on the press. Uh, but I was wondering, okay, if Trump stays out of jail and gets back into the White House. Will he do the same thing that he did uh, to Barack Obama's legacy last time, try and destroy as much of it as he can just out of spite? But on the other hand, the Inflation Reduction Act does seem to be working in the US and the economy is growing much stronger than uh, most of the rest of the world. So will he cancel that if it's if it's working? I suppose that's the, the question I have in in my head, oh yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure if it'd have the capacity to, to necessarily cancel it or repeal it as such. I think the, but the bigger threat would be that he would just turbocharge new oil and gas licensing straight from the off. So, so you know, he would almost immediately try and lock in 
yet another wave of fossil fuel infrastructure that if what if it got built would be hard to would be hard to unpick um and then obviously you have the international aspect of if it did if he did remove from the paris agreement particularly at a time where this time around the geopolitical tensions between as i mentioned before some of those petro states and, and the rest are more pronounced than they were would he this time be able to trigger a bit of an exodus uh, from the paris agreement and get some mm-hmm. kind of authoritarian allies alongside him um so there's just i think there's yeah huge potential risks there not to mention the risks of conflict and economic disruption that would flow from him taking a kind of isolationist yeah. perspective on on ukraine and other areas so um yeah, I, I think I, I, I get the argument that there's there's things you wouldn't be able to unpick, but God, it's it's scary stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and that's uh, going on to more scary stuff. Um, they, you know, you mentioned Ukraine there, but you know we've got turmoil obviously continuing in Ukraine and the Middle East itself, and you know with the Venezuela saber rattling in in South America over uh, oil reserves, I think that's going to keep oil prices high through the year, um, which in turn, the, the the only silver lining of it is it will favour renewables on both cost and energy security grounds. So we, whether or not we have politicians in the rest of the world actually properly grasping the nettle to exploit that, or whether it just happens organically on um, on economic grounds, I think renewables will continue to surge because of the turmoil in oil producing areas. Yeah, I agree. Agree wholeheartedly with that. I think you know the the, the transition is underway, isn't it? And I just think that it's it's not going to go backwards. It's all just about the pace and how many barriers are put in its way. But the the broad economic thrust of it is is locked in now. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, long may that continue. I think you flagged up your third one already. Oh, I'd mentioned C-Bam. C-Bam. Yeah, yeah. I, I had I had CBAM as as one of them. Although actually related to it, I suppose is the wider um, Bridgetown agenda, um, which it, this this sort of package of financial reforms that are being proposed by um, Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley. Um, I was lucky enough to see a speaker at um, COP twenty nine. Um, sorry, COP twenty eight. And and she was hugely impressive. And um, I, th- I think you know her her central argument that international financial institutions need reforming to mobilise and enable more climate finance into developing economies is just kind of unanswerable. And and there's an increasingly large uh, coalition around uh, that plan. Uh, I think it was notable at the start of the year. Emmanuel Macron kind of again highlighted his support for you know really quite significant reform to boost flows of climate finance into developing economies and, and, and deliver, I think, what he called like a green interest rate that would lower interest rates for green projects, again, particularly in emerging and developing economies. Mm. Um, and it feels like it's it's absolutely an idea whose time has come. Um, honestly, it should have come 10 years ago, but I think there is going to be quite a lot of momentum around it this year, um, partly because COP28 kind of got that commitment on fossil fuels that it wanted. Um this year's COP, the question will be, well, what's it about? Because it's not until next year that we're going to get the next wave of national climate action plans um, submitted. Uh, so there is a little bit of a gap in kind of like, what should it be about? And I think finance, climate finance will be right at the top of that agenda um, mm-hmm. and will likely be the defining issue from this year's COP. Um, and I think there is a bit of an opportunity amidst all the turmoil for you know governments to come together and say, right, well, there are 
you know, relatively sim- simple changes we can make to the way the World Bank, the way the IMF operates, um, the way a lot of the big donor countries provide finance that really could have a transformational impact. Um, and it's not a quick fix, but I think I think there'll be some, hopefully be some interesting developments on that. And of course, CBAM absolutely plays into that. And this idea of international carbon taxation that we're seeing with the uh, the UN Corsia mechanism, uh, offsetting mechanism for aviation, that plays into that as well. So I, I think we the hope is if we've got some optimistic glasses at a rather, <laughs> rather pessimistic time, um, is that we are seeing some really interesting thinking on all those fronts and just maybe we could see some encouraging progress this year to to get you know some those kind of interlocking reforms coming forward that that would have a really substantial real world impact on clean energy and and, and, and climate development um, right around the world. Excellent. Um, and that actually that bridge was the Bridgeton. Yeah, the Bridgetown agenda. It's called agenda. named named after Bridgetown, where it was kind of developed. I mean, it's it's right. kind of a bit of an umbrella term for lots of quite technical reforms around yeah. how the IMF and the World Bank lend money, how they leverage in private capital. Um, you know, whether or not we can start to see. And and Mia Motley made this point. You know, that we need other forms of <clears throat> international potentially taxation if we are to get up above. You know, to the sort of four hundred billion plus levels of climate finance we need to see flowing into these emerging and developing economies so it's um it's yeah it's 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 really important if slightly technocratic stuff yeah well it's something i'm certainly going to have to go and google after this session because uh, i i wasn't so familiar with it which is why i invited you along because you know about these things um my third one well, actually looking at it now is a little bit wiffle-waffly, and I talked about it before, which is I think there's going to be a reckoning between those corporations who are truly embracing sustainability and those who are, um, they may think they are, but it's business as usual with a, with, you know, with a, a, a bit of greenwash thrown on top. And I think that gap is going to become increasingly apparent as we move into the these economic and policy agendas that we're talking about before, I, I, I think a lot of people are going to have to go back and say, yes, we have a net zero target. We've promised we'll do this. We've promised that. What are we actually doing to deliver on that rather than sort of a, a little bit of energy efficiency or some solar panels on the on, on the factory roof or whatever it might be? And, you know, I talked about the advertising standards agency before i think they're going to have their work cut out for them because i think they're going to be a lot of these claims do need knocking down and as i said before if that ends up in green hush that's i'm happy with that as long as those companies are delivering yeah no i I think it's it's almost one of the defining issues isn't it for corporates at the moment is like how serious they are about this agenda i always say to when people sort of ask me about it like when you're assessing it as a journalist um it often just comes back to the money. It's like if if you've got a if you've got an announcement that's actually backed by investment that says we are going to invest this amount in delivering on these goals, it just immediately becomes so much more plausible um, than these just target vague aspirational targets. I think you just you need to explain the how as well as the mm-hmm. what and why you're trying to do. And and I think so many of these announcements just don't necessarily have that real financial backing that they need and the best ones absolutely do i mean more and more we're writing stories about corporates that kind of have multi-million or multi-billion dollar funds Mm -hmm. 
um, already assigned over the coming decade to say that, you know, when they talk about decarbonizing their factories, there is a plan. There is a plan yeah. to actually do it. It isn't just, oh, this is something we're going to do, hopefully, at some point in the near future. Yeah, and what I came across only really towards the end of last year, thinking back to last year, was that a lot of people now are having been stung maybe about by the accusation that net zero is intrinsically greenwashing, which I, I don't agree with, but it could be, could be used as cover. They're actually underpinning their net zero target with science-based targets for decarbonisation underneath. So they can actually be held to account or hold themselves to account against a, a defined carbon reduction trajectory rather than just, oh, in 2040, we will be carbon neutral. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the final question that I posed us both was... If I ruled the world, so wishful thinking, but within reasonably economically and thermodynamically valid actions. Um, yeah, this is a tricky one. Because I, I, I often ask this one as well. People are like, what's the one thing you'd do? And of course, it's a bit of a trick question, isn't it? Because the, the kind of the wicked nature of climate change and environmental problems is there isn't one thing. <laughs> there kind of there isn't. There's just not a simple fix to any of it. Uh, but if you, I suppose if you're looking for like the biggest impact, um, I think touching on that CBAM issue that we were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, any classical economist would tell you we've got to price the externality. Yeah. And if you could find a way to get a carbon price onto pollution, onto emissions, and, and then redistribute the funds that you raise in a sort of tax and dividend model to, you know, benefit those who are disproportionately impacted by that tax – um, you know, that's the thing that I think would have a, a real transformative impact. And, and uh, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that since the EU has had a deeply imperfect, but still some form of carbon pricing in place, um, you know, it's kind of led the world on decarbonisation efforts, whilst at the same time, not seeing a negative impact on its living standards. I think there's a kind of, that that's a, that's probably the one thing you'd do from a kind of dry, boring thing. I, I, I think. I think the other thing I'd do, just if I, if I was to have a second one, um, is, is, is to put. Um, um, and, and lots of people would disagree with this, but I think a lot more money into carbon removals. Um, I think. Yeah. I think at the, the the point in the crisis that we're at, um, and the level of really exciting stuff that's going on in carbon removals, um, I think a lot more funding and focus on that sector. Yeah, and and also more governance on that sector because let's not pretend there are significant risks to some of the carbon removal projects. So, uh, just a, a, a bigger focus in general, um, both in terms of governments, governance, and and financing for those emerging carbon removal uh, technologies and projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's things like carbon capture storage. Again, there's a sort of perfectionist wing of environmentalism which sort of wants to intrinsically knock them down you know if um if somebody could come up with a truly sustainable aviation fuel you know i would be delighted but you, you get the impression that some people would actually be slightly disappointed uh, and uh the same with carbon capture and storage if it can be made to work at scale economic, economically, it would be fantastic. The hydrogen economy is another one on that list, which I can see the real benefits of it, and I wish it would work, but a little bit of cynicism because nobody's really got hydrogen delivering at scale yet, despite you know 
decades of, of trying. So, yeah, it's on that list of things that I would like to happen. But, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not holding out too much hope. But also they're all things that kind of need to happen. So there just needs to be more focus on them. Again, this, yeah. this is the frustration I have with the oil and gas majors saying, well, you know, it's we, we, we're committed to decarbonisation. And it's like, well, you're the people with the expertise and the deep pockets that could start to make some of these things happen at scale. And yet you are often lobbying against them and, and, and not investing nearly mm-hmm. enough in them. So I think there's a, yeah, I think it's it's an area where there's real flaws on all sides of the environmental movement, both from kind of the deep greens who need to oppose it. And then from, I suppose, the more pragmatist wing where still just, we're just not seeing the progress on yeah. it. So it's, it's, it's all deeply frustrating, but you know, it does remain very hard to see how you get to net zero emissions in a modern industrialized economy um, yeah. without, without that suite of solutions, not as the main solution. I think, you know, renewables, electrification, that will continue to dominate, but to deal with the last sort of 20% of emissions, you are going to need breakthroughs in these areas. Yeah. Um, and and they're not getting enough R&D, they're not getting enough policy development, and they're certainly not getting enough deployment. Well, my, if I ruled the world, was um, to abolish fossil fuel subsidies, which in a way effectively might mean some carbon pricing as well. But, um, you know, just almost every budget we've had in the UK for as long as I can remember, has always had some tax break for, you know, North Sea oil and gas exploration. You think, well, that's the dominant economic model. You know, why can't it, you know, clean its own face in terms of uh, exploration? Why does the taxpayer have to keep subsidising it? Uh, so, uh, but other, I suppose, subsidies for perverse incentives, et cetera, et cetera, trying to eliminate those because we've seen renewable energy uh, plummet in cost. We've seen technologies such as uh, heat pumps start to reduce in cost. I wouldn't say plummet just yet. But if we could take away some of the subsidies that uh, that promote high carbon behaviour, high carbon infrastructure, I think that would get us uh, much further down the road much more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's just still utterly perverse that there's such such huge subsidies being provided to them. Um, yeah. And yeah, just ridiculous way to run an economy that's trying to decarbonise. I mean, I get that it's politically difficult, but there's there's got to be more progress from governments yeah. all around the world on tackling those that that level of support that's handed to this industry. Right. Well, I think we've put the world to rights then. Indeed, everything's fixed. Yes. <laughs> we've set out how to do this. So it just leaves me to thank you very much, James, for taking part. And I hope everybody got a huge amount of insight out of that session. Hey, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. If you find this episode of the podcast interesting, please do me two wee favours. First of all, give it a five-star rating to help others find it as well. And secondly, subscribe via your usual podcast provider so you'll get every episode into the future. Until next time, goodbye.